Last week, we began our series entitled Overflow, where we were looking into the Bible for real and practical ways that we can change our hearts that would result in an overflow that changes our actions. You may remember the goal of this series is real heart change that leads to real life change. And today, we're going to be looking at this potentially familiar passage to you in the book of 2 Corinthians that talks about how we as Christians wage war against the things of this world and how we take captive every thought to bring it to the obedience of Christ. And so, although we're in this series where we're focused on the heart and the condition of the heart, today, we're going to focus on our minds and our thoughts, on philosophies, on the intellect. Now, most of us understand when we hear the word or read the word heart in the Scriptures, we understand it's not being used in the sense of that major organ in the body that pumps blood through the rest of the body and that's needed in order to sustain life. Rather, most of the time when the Bible uses this word, it's referring to something different. It's referring to the place where you feel and have emotions. And that's the way we're choosing to use it even in this series And we commonly today speak of the heart in this way, right? We talk about how we love from the heart. But the Bible had more than just uh, emotions and feelings in mind when they were talking and when they wrote about the heart. See, for the biblical writers, the heart was also the place where choices were made. An example of this can be seen with King David. He's on his deathbed, and he's talking to his son Solomon, who's about to take the throne. And he says this, "'My son, with all my heart, I wanted to build a house for the Lord.'" Now, God had another uh, plan in mind. Solomon was going to build the temple, but here was a desire in David's heart and a choice that he was going to make from it. However, the concept of the heart for the biblical writers went even beyond emotions and choices. See, when the biblical writers wrote, they had no concept of the brain. Instead, for the Hebrew writers, the intellectual activity, or what we say happens in the brain, for them, it happened in the heart the same place from where you feel and have emotion, that same place you make choices, and from it you also think. For example, there are places in the Bible that tell us that you know with your heart, you understand and make connections with your heart. The book of Proverbs says that wisdom dwells in the heart. Other places in the Scriptures, it says that the heart is used to discern between truth and error. See, the heart in the Bible is where you think and make sense of the world. It's where you feel and have emotions, and it's the place from which choices are made. And so, if we're going to appropriately appropriately address the issue of our hearts, we need to also look at our minds, the way we think, what we choose to think about, and how we come to conclusions based on the thoughts that we have. We have to make that 18-inch move from the head to the heart. And I recognize this may seem a bit dangerous to speak of our faith as something that takes place in the mind because, after all, we know that our faith should uh, deal with the condition of our hearts. And I recognize it's potentially even a dangerous road for us to go down. We could easily puff ourselves up with right knowledge and then be in danger of wrong living, wrong motives, and, and wrong and even sinful actions. However, I'd submit to you this morning, it is just as dangerous if we do not focus on right thinking. It's a false choice to say that we have to choose between right thinking and right living. We must look both at the conditions of our heart and our thinking. Matter of fact, our faith starts in the mind. Our faith starts with right beliefs. When we're confronted with the gospel, we're considering whether those facts are true or not. But it makes the move to the heart when after examining the evidence, we put our trust in it. 
We believe it to be true and we live as if those facts are true. True change in our actions starts with a change in our heart and a change in our heart starts with a change in our mind. And with this intent on changing the mind, we're going to look at our text for the, this morning. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, as people who have committed their lives to Christ, as Christians, we indeed are at war. Now, the New Testament uses military language throughout to describe the Christian life. However, as Christians, we don't battle against people, nor is our waging of war for self-defense. We don't battle with the same weapons as the world does. We don't take the same kind of captives. We don't fight to expand territory. Our leaders don't have that same rough-and-tough mentality, and neither do people seek to be promoted to higher ranks, or at least that was never the intent of the New Testament writers or what God had in mind for the church. But we are at war, but we don't wage war as the world does. And when Paul says this in our text, this is what he means. He means that as Christians, we choose to live life and succeed in life in the same— sorry, we don't choose to live life and succeed in life in the same way that the rest of the world does. The world looks at outward circumstances. They use authority to tear people down, words to terrify. They measure themselves by themselves. They take credit for other people's work. They react out of jealousy. They're deceitful and fake. They exalt themselves. They take advantage of other people using manipulation. They're crafty, self-defensive, selfish. They seek to have what others have, and they're quarrelsome. But we don't wage war as the world does because we don't adhere to the world's value system. Nor is our commander-in-chief the same. We have another Lord, another commander-in-chief, another one who's calling the shots, Jesus. Furthermore, we have another power working inside of us, the Holy Spirit. We don't even use the same weapons. Ours are those of spiritual weaponry. Matter of fact, we're not even fighting on the same battleground. We have another goal in mind entirely. We don't wage war as the world does. First, let's look at that, our weapons of warfare Paul says that our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. The weapons we used to fight with, they're not the same as the world. The world, they use manipulation and power and force and control and self-might. But Paul calls our weapons weapons of righteousness. And in the book of Ephesians, he calls them the armor of God. Let's turn over there and look at that. Ephesians chapter 6, and starting at verse 11 and following. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to take your stand. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. See, this is our weaponry. It's truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, the Word of God, and prayer. The reason these weapons are so powerful is because they have divine 
power. It's not swords and bombs and planes. It's the power of God dwelling inside of us. The Spirit who has these characteristics of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. And these characteristics, these things are what demolish strongholds. Now the word strongholds in our text in 2 Corinthians, it refers to those places of fortress where the enemy is dug in and where he feels secure. Areas in our life that seem like we have no control over or areas that we don't want to address or things that seem too powerful for us to conquer on our own. And these strongholds, Paul says, they are made in the minds of men. There is own pride and prejudices and evilness. See, the enemy of Christ comes not in tanks, but in thoughts, not in planes, but in pride and prejudices, not in aircrafts, but in attitudes. Those are the obstacles that are keeping people prisoners of war, prisoners of Satan, and are keeping them from becoming free in the gracious liberty and love that Christ has for them. But it doesn't matter how deep those fortresses are, how uh, how strong the strongholds are, those fortresses and strongholds are no have no weight against the weapons that we have at our disposal because our weapons have divine power. They're not our weapons. Rather, they are of God. And when it says that they have divine power, it literally means that they have God power. Or another translation says they are empowered by God. And with God as the effective force behind our weaponry, there is no enemy who has a chance against us. Paul intends to say that although these strongholds are firm and and these fortresses dug deep, our weapons are effective to demolish and destroy the pride, the prejudices, and the evilness that has taken root in the heart and in the mind of men. And then Paul goes on to say, we demolish arguments and every pretension that has set itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. It's here that Paul tells us the location of our warfare or where our battling takes place. It takes place in the minds, in the arguments, in the thoughts that people develop in their minds that keep them from being obedient to Christ. Now, the word argument in our text, it means reasoning or philosophy. The word pretension, it carries the idea of the pride that people take in the strength of their own arguments. And it's true. If Satan has the mind of a person... He has that whole person. And the reason this is the case is because the mind is affected by and affects our emotions, our thought patterns, our objectivity, subjectivity, and it affects a personal's physical well-being. So whatever you have going on up here, it affects you here and overflows into your actions and behaviors. And so Satan targets and tries to poison the minds of people. He fills them with ideas that give a false sense of reality. He's clever and keen on being able to make someone think that reality works in one way when the truth is it works in an entirely different way. He captivates minds with tricks and facades, and he's done this with so many people all throughout history and so many ideas. One of them that dominates our world today is the worldview of postmodernism. If you don't know what postmodernism is, it's the acceptance of the ideology that all truth is subjective, that there are no moral absolutes, and this captivates people. And it comes in phrases like this, well, why why can't I just practice what I want to practice, and you practice what you want to practice as long as we're not hurting anyone? Or you can believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe, but let's not impose our beliefs on one another. 
And many people have bought into this lie that we should live in this subjective moral world where right and wrong can be and should be determined by an individual person, which if they want to change their mind later down the road, why not if morals are subjective? And it's captivating to people because it's covered in this language of being tolerant. Because no one wants to be labeled as a bigot or closed-minded or intolerant. And so people slowly grab on to this idea. And it starts with them being less outspoken about their own beliefs. And then slowly it leads to them questioning their own beliefs and whether what they once thought to be true is true at all. Example of, and it has led to the demoralization, uh, demoralization of our culture. An example of this can be seen in the way that we treat other human lives. Whether it be taking the life of either an infant or someone of another race, or the way that we speak to other people, straight disgust and nastiness, the way we talk to people, all in the name of a cause that we stand for, instead of, instead of starting with this moral absolute that all human life is valuable and has meaning and purpose and worth, and therefore everyone should be treated with dignity and respect. See, it starts in the mind, and once we accept these kinds of ideas, it affects our hearts, and as a result, it overflows into our actions and our behaviors. So if Satan has the mind, then he has the whole person. This is actually part of the reason why my passion for kids' ministry grows on a daily basis. Because statistics show that by the time a child is the age of nine, they have already begun to establish some of their major moral foundations. And by the age of 13, well, they have already begun to establish what they believe concerning faith, God, and the Bible. Kids in students' minds, they are formable and moldable. They're tr still trying to discover how this world operates and works. And we as a church have a unique opportunity, and yet at the same time, a huge responsibility to introduce these kids to the truth of God's Word, to help build those foundations. But on the flip side, although those foundations are formed at such a young age, the statistics of young students who leave the faith once going to college is remarkably high. And why is that? Why, why have they left their faith? Most often, it's because students are introduced to new ideas, new thoughts that they don't have a good defense for. And so those arguments, they set themselves up against the knowledge of God and unless that kid has a firm foundation in the Word of God and is able to take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ, what do you think wins out? It's not the Word. Who do you think now has control of that kid's heart? It's not God. And knowing this truth is why we make sure that every Sunday morning with our kids, that we're not just trying to teach them another Bible story. We're not just trying to make a, a, another craft with them. Rather, we're trying to point them to this book as the place, the Word of God is the place where they can come to to learn the truths of how everything operates and also learn how they should live. I have a huge passion for our kids to know this book, but not just to know what's inside of it, but also to be able to defend its truths. For example, I don't just want our kids to know that Jesus was raised from the dead. I want them to know why he was raised from the dead, why it's so important that he was raised from the dead, and then be able to defend the historical resurrection of Jesus so that when they're introduced to those new ideas, when someone sets up an argument and a thought against them, says, well, why, why do you believe in Jesus anyways? The resurrection, that's not even scientifically possible that they're able to stand up, take that thought captive, and defend the resurrection and say things like, then what do you do with Jesus' followers? 
who literally overnight changed from being cowards to some of the most courageous people in all of history? Or what do you do with the, uh, the man, Jesus? There's more historical evidence for him than any other person in life. And, and he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is who he says he is And this event happened. And why is it that because of this thing that you say is not scientifically possible, that literally all of culture, art, language, nations have changed around that event? That they're able to stand up for their belief, able to defend the resurrection. And if you don't mind, I'd like to speak to the parents in the room for just a moment. If you're a parent, you have this same responsibility too. We here at the church maybe have 40 hours a year with your child. That's if you come and bring your child to church three times a month. You miss one Sunday a month, we have 40 hours with your kid a year. And yet I feel like even that number is decreasing as regular church attendance is being won out by other things. But if we have those 40 hours, you see why it's nearly impossible to accomplish such a huge task in such a little amount of time. It is the reason why we uh, make every moment matter. And and, and as soon as the kids hit our room, that they are engaging in activities and things that are helping influence their mind and teaching them the truths of God's word. But our time and therefore our influence, it is limited. Because a child, although we have 40 hours, They have another 8,720 hours of other influences, other arguments and pretensions influencing their minds and thoughts throughout that same year. That's why it's our vision with our kids' ministry to partner with parents to impact the next generation, to provide parents with resources and information and tools and events that would help them teach these truths to their kids, defend the truths of the Scripture, be able to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And as a parent, I I understand your task is overwhelming because sometimes it is just enough to get your kid to school on time and and then to get them fed that night and and to bed. But please, please never ever underestimate the importance of your kid knowing the Word and being able to defend the truths of the Scriptures. Because every day your child is walking into a world where they're getting messages that influence and affect their mind. They're hearing arguments and philosophies and worldviews, and they don't even know it's happening. But it's affecting their minds, and it's changing their hearts, and it's going to overflow into their actions and behaviors. And although I could keep going on about kids, I brought them up because all of us know how formable and shapeable a child's mind is. That's why education is so important at such a young age. It's why we send kids to school while they're still kids. But the reality is, your mind's no different. See, the battleground is the same whether you're nine or whether you're 90. The war is still waging. The war still remains. And although sometimes it's harder to change someone's mind the older they get or the more entrenched they get into their beliefs, it is still the place that if Satan has it, then he has the whole person. But although this is true, this is also true. If God has the mind. He has the whole person. And hear this this morning. It doesn't matter how deeply entrenched in someone's mind these ideas and philosophies are. Those fortresses and strongholds are no match for the divinely powerful weapons that we have at our disposal. It is our goal that we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. And the way we demolish these arguments is not by self-defense, 
It's not even by a new system of intellectual philosophy. Remember, we don't wage war as the world does. Rather, the way we demolish arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God is by pointing people to Jesus Christ, to His attitude, to His actions, to His lifestyle. And not only do we say and declare these things with our mouth, we back it up with our actions. A new life that demonstrates a love for God and for others. And when we preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, it doesn't matter what arguments, pretensions that have set themselves up in someone's mind because the Spirit comes along, the Holy Spirit, this is part of His work in the world, that He convicts men of sin and righteousness and judgment. But our goal as Christians is to take whatever thought may be out in the world, whatever belief and worldview and system that someone's holding on to and pointing them to the man Jesus. We plant that seed. We may even do some work of watering, but God comes along and He brings growth. See, people do change. Their actions can change. Their hearts can change because minds can change when they become obedient to Christ and make Him commander over their life. See, this idea of changing the mind, it's actually a biblical concept. There's even a word I use to explain this idea. It's a word you hear us say a lot around here, the word repentance. The word repentance means a change in mind. Now, the general idea of repentance is when we reconsider or rethink a past act or opinion. And related to salvation, it's when we change our mind and our attitudes towards sin in general, but our own personal sins in particular. Now, repentance itself does not include the actual change of a lifestyle. Repentance is changing our mind about sin, a new mental and spiritual attitude about sin, one of hatred and remorse, a desire and determination to be rid of it. But this turning that constitutes repentance, it takes place in the heart and it leads to a change in life. It's what Jesus meant when he said these words, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. A change in our mind, a repentance, should result in a change in our life, a bearing or producing of good fruit. Now, many times I say that repentance is like you're walking in one direction, you stop, turn around, and start walking in the other direction. That's the ex exactly the idea of repentance, that you stop walking towards sin and you turn and start walking toward the God of salvation. But the idea here is a change in mind, that you change your mind about the issue and your body goes with it the rest of your lifestyle. It produces fruit in keeping with repentance. And so a change in our actions, a change in our heart, it starts with repentance. It starts with a change in our mind, a reconsidering, a rethinking of what we once thought to be true and acceptable and right and accepting the truths that God has for us. It's taking every thought, argument, pretension captive and bringing it to the obedience of Christ pointing people to Jesus, to his life, to his death, to his attitude, to his actions. See, if you want to change, change your actions, change your heart, it's got to start with repentance, a changing of your mind. And that is true of every single person who is outside of Christ. But I want you to know that when Paul was writing this, he was writing it to people who had already accepted Christ. He was writing it to the church, to Christians. And there are some within the church who have not allowed all of their thoughts to become obedient to our commanding officer, to Jesus. Some people have made up their minds. They've dug those trenches and those fortresses and they are determined and they're not willing nor interested to study out what God has to say about the issue. 
And so if there is something in your life that's not in accordance with the revealed knowledge of God, what God desires for your life, it's time to reconsider, to rethink, to take captive that thought and bring it to the obedience of Christ. So whether you're a Christian or whether you're a seeker, it's time to truly consider what this book says, the Bible, the inerrant and infallible Word of God without any mixture of error. It is the exact record of the ultimate truth. This book has the power to defeat, overthrow, take over, and conquer any argument that anyone has who's willing to honestly study it out and know God and live with Him forever. It does not matter how sophisticated, how lofty or profound or where an argument came from, no argument has a chance against this book because this book contains the truth. It contains the knowledge of God and it points us to the man Jesus. And Jesus sets free. Now I recognize there are some who manipulate this book. There are others who suppress its truth. They, they ignore it and don't want to accept it. And because of that, it's unwilling to change. This is unable to change their mind, not because there's something wrong with the book, but rather because they're unwilling to honestly deal with its content. But you, you and I, this is what we should do. We should look at our life, look closely at every thought, idea, belief, moral, and philosophy that we hold on to, and if it is not in line with the revealed knowledge of God, with His Word, it's time to take that thought, that argument and pretension captive and bring it to the obedience of Christ, to repent, to change our mind on the issue. We are at war. War against false ideas, false worldviews, false doctrines or beliefs, and false moral teachings. And the reason we're at war with these things is because they stand in the way of someone knowing God and being known by Him. They are slaves and prisoners of war to these things. Now it's important to remember, our war is not against people. The Word says and commands us that we should love others. Our war is against falsehood. It's against these arguments that put people in bondage and keep them as captives and slaves and prisoners of war. And so as the Apostle Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do it in this way. Look what it says. With gentleness and respect. Always be ready to give a defense, an answer for the hope that you have. Always ready to tear down anything that would set itself up against the knowledge of God. Because the knowledge of God points people to Jesus and Jesus sets free. That's what we're at war with. And it is time to declare war on those things. It's time to declare war using those divinely powerful weapons against falsehood, against arguments and pretensions that have been set up against the knowledge of God. It's time to declare war on those things that are keeping people in bondage, that are keeping them from the freedom that Christ offers. It's time to take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ, whether that be in your own life or in the life of others. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. Indeed, you are a God of truth. And God, we know we live in the world we don't wage war as the world does. You're now calling the shots. You're now our commanding officer. And God, I pray 
that if there be any fortress, any stronghold, anything, any barrier standing in the way between someone knowing you and knowing your son Jesus, that you would do your work to demolish those things so that people may be obedient to your son Jesus. I pray that for Christian, any Christian in this room, and I pray that for anyone who's still outside of you. God, we thank you for Jesus, the one who sets us free. We thank you for the cross that accomplished our redemption. We thank you for the resurrection that affirmed it and that promises us life eternal with you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The well-known preacher, John Piper, he said this, Jesus meant for the truth in the head to waken passion in the heart. He said this when he was reflecting and commenting on these words of Jesus. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus desires that you and I know the truth, because the truth liberates. It sets captives free. And when we change our mind, when we know this truth, ah, we also get a change in our status. We go from being prisoners of war and slaves to children of God. See, this truth, the knowledge of God, it can be found in this book. And this book points us to the man, Jesus. And it's Jesus that sets free. We are at war. We're at war with Satan, our enemy, because he has taken every single person as a captive and slave. He's made them a slave to sin, to lies, to any idea and falsehood that would set itself up against the knowledge of God. And Satan is going to continue to do that. He's wanting other people to keep them as captives and slaves. Because he knows once he has your mind, he has the rest of you. He's going to keep you from this knowledge and from this truth. But, but when we fill our mind with this truth, this knowledge of God, that points us to Jesus. We begin to know this truth and it awakens passion in the heart. And it overflows into our actions. And then others see that passion, that change in lifestyle. And they want to be a part of it. And so at that moment, we're given an opportunity to tear down those strongholds in that person's life point them to that knowledge and to that man, Jesus. Today, we're going to close our service with a song we've sung here a couple of times. And the song, its lyrics has in mind this familiar story from the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, when the people of God, the Israelites, were leaving slavery from Egypt, their slavery of some 400 years, and God was leading them into the land of promise. And as they were walking out of Egypt, they come up against an obstacle, a barrier standing in the way between their slavery and their freedom. And so God tells their leader Moses to put his staff in the water. It was the Red Sea. That was the obstacle. And when he does, the all-divine and powerful God splits the sea in two, and the people walk through on dry ground into the land of freedom. And in that moment, they move from being slaves and captives to being prisoners, to being, sorry, to being children of God. 
And we're going to sing that song with that story in mind because that story reminds us of our story. The story of anyone and everyone who would surrender their life to Christ. Because our story is similar. We have an obstacle standing in the way between us and God. It's our own sin. But the all-divine and powerful God, I did something miraculous. He sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die a death that no one else could die. And in it, he accomplished salvation for the entire world. And he offers it to anyone who would come and put his trust and belief in him. Now, the chorus of this song has these lyrics. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. And this morning, as we sing those words, what I want you to do is I want you to put in mind whatever obstacle that is keeping you as a slave and prisoner of war. Maybe it is fear. Maybe it's another idea, another falsehood, false belief, whatever it is. And then declare it to be true that you're no longer a slave to that. You're rather a child of God. And for any person who's still not accepted Christ, that obstacle that's standing in the way, that barrier, that stronghold, that fortress, it's your own sin. And today can be the day that you declare, I am a child of God. Because God has offered that invitation. And if you would come and believe in him, Believe those facts to be true. Put your trust in him. Change your mind. Repent. Confess with your mouth that he is Lord. And then submit to being baptized by immersion for the forgiveness of sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That barrier is removed. And you can even say today, I am a child of God. So whatever that thing is, keep that in your mind as we sing that lyric. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child.